silly season drama, cost cap breaches, and drivers wearing underwear over their race suits. 2022 had a lot going on, and it's time for a season review. So, get ready, because you've been summoned to the steward's office. Hello everyone and welcome to the steward's office. I'm Syrah and today we're going to be talking about the 2022 F1 season. 2022 was one hell of a season. We had 22 races, people leaving, people retiring, teams announcing drivers, drivers saying that teams were lying And of course, we then had the team principals deciding to have a post-season silly season all of their own. It was a lot to digest. So let's try and break it down. There's so much that happened this season that I almost forgot one of the biggest stories. This season basically started off with a huge changing of the guards, and Michael Massey ended up leaving his role as race director, and we had two new race directors come into the fray. Now, we actually have no clue what happened when the FIA did that investigation into Abu Dhabi 2021, and Michael Massey is under an NDA, so we don't actually know what went on there and the conversations that were had between him and the FIA. There were a couple of rumours that were flying around during the middle of the season about him potentially suing the FIA for unfair dismissal, but like I said, it was just a lot of hearsay. But yeah, the FIA ended up bringing in two new race directors, and this was at the same time the FIA were trying to say that they were looking for more consistency throughout the sport. Now, The problem with having two different people rule the races is that what one director might think is completely fine and it doesn't warrant a penalty at all, the other race director might not think so. And suddenly, the drivers don't really know what the rules are and we just end up back in a place of no consistency. On a whole, I think in general, they were fairly aligned with most things, whether that was for good or bad. They had some hard and fast rules when it came to things like track limits, which, to be fair, have been a bit more ambiguous in the past couple of years, and it's caused the drivers a little bit of confusion. But I still think there were some major, major issues this year in what constituted fines, what constituted penalties, when to have a red flag, when to delay a race... Monaco, for me, felt like quite a messy race, to be honest. From the viewer's side, at least, for me, I don't think it was really clear what was going on. It was raining quite badly, and we weren't really made clear on whether we were getting a race today, whether we weren't. The commentator seemed a little bit confused. I don't know whether it was the same for other viewers, for the teams, for the drivers, but for me and my family, who I was watching with, it just seemed really unorganised. But that's fairly harmless in the grand scheme of things, right? That's fairly harmless. The biggest mistake I think that was made this season was there being a crane on track in Suzuka. There was absolutely no way the drivers should have been on track with a crane on track. 
And if that was going to happen, they should have been told straight away by their race engineers. Because by the sounds of the radios afterwards, some of the race engineers were shocked that there was a crane on track in the first place. The first thing that they had heard about it was from the drivers themselves. It was probably one of the lowest points in the season for me, seeing the crane on track and just how close Pierre got to that crane. And look, I know people are going to make that argument of, you know, he shouldn't have been going that fast because it was a red flag. And there are also arguments on the other side that breaking at the speed he was going would have caused its own issues. But putting all of that aside now, whether he was speeding or not, with the amount of rain that was on track and with how poor visibility was, there was always a chance that he or any of the other drivers could have crashed. And no fan of the sport wants to see that happen. I really, really hope in 2023 we don't get another incident like that and the FIA has learned from that because so many of the drivers and the team principals and the teams in general were so unhappy with seeing that happen. So even though we had this massive change in the guards in terms of race directors, I genuinely think that the FIA and F1 have some issues that really need to be ironed out. especially for the safety of the drivers. I think they're getting caught up in a lot of small things that probably don't mean too much, things that haven't been a problem in previous years, and they're just not paying enough attention to the safety of the drivers when it comes to things that the FIA can actually change and control and manage while they're on track. But I guess we're just going to have to wait and see when the 2023 season starts what their race directors and the FIA are actually prioritising. As well as changes to the race directors though, 2022 also meant another massive change and that was in the aero regulations. The FIA and F1 were hoping that a change in the aero regs would mean we'd have a lot closer racing. So basically there wouldn't be as much dirty air coming off the cars in front and cars would be able to follow each other a lot closer. Now in theory, it should mean we'd get better overtaking because the cars weren't losing a load of speed the minute they got quite close to the race car in front of them. In order for that to happen, F1 decided to reintroduce ground effect and most of the teams had absolutely no clue how to deal with the poor poison that came along with these cars. To be honest with you guys, I don't think most of the teams had any clue that pole poising was even going to be an issue with these cars. So what we ended up with was a lot of the teams bouncing up and down on the racetracks and it just looked painful. One of the images that is permanently ingrained in my mind when I think about pole poising or I hear the word pole poising is that image of Lewis really struggling to climb out of the car. You could tell how much pain and discomfort he was in and it just wasn't as easy for him to get out of the car as it is normally for a race car driver. I know Mercedes have really struggled with pole poising for a large part of this season. They were probably one of the teams that struggled with it the worst and could not seem to figure out why it was happening. It does seem to be a little bit more under control now though and I think most of the teams who had poor poising 
have managed to control it somehow. Red Bull was one of the only teams that didn't really have that issue though, but Adrian Newey was around when F1 had ground effect cars in play years ago, so he kind of had a head start on the car concept and the design. And that's just the benefit you get when you have an engineer like Newey on your team who's been in the game for so long and has seen it all and done it all. It's exactly why Red Bull have kept him with their team for so long. And why wouldn't you use his knowledge? Because it's clearly worked out for them. Strangely enough, though, towards the end of the season, I feel like McLaren ended up picking up on some of the pole poison. I mean, it could have been random bouncing or bottoming out, but from what I saw on screen and from what the drivers were saying as well, it sounded like it was poor poising, and I don't know why that was. It's so strange because they weren't a team that struggled with poor poising at the beginning of the season. They seemed to have quite a smooth sailing car, and I don't know whether it was because of certain upgrades they brought along to the car, whether it was track specific, but so weird to see them pick up on the pole poising when teams were kind of getting it out of the cars. I guess we'll see next year now if the teams have really managed to iron up the pole poising though, or if it's going to carry on. And I say that because I don't know how many of the teams just masked the issue by just raising the ride height of the car, and how many actually managed to get to the crux of the problem and really understand what was causing the pole poising. Next year, though, the FIA are putting in a set of penalties if the pole pricing goes above a certain frequency. And I can completely understand why. Microconcussions are a thing, and they can be really bad in the long run for anyone who's suffering with them, especially if you're dealing with them that consistently. And with 23 races next year, if you're dealing with bouncing that consistently, your head is hitting the helmet that much, it's gonna cause some long-term problems. Along with the new aero regs though, we also had the new Pirelli 18-inch tyres come into play. I can't lie to you guys, when these were shown on the 2021 cars, they looked ridiculous to me. Honestly, I hated the look of them on the cars because they just looked massive. The 2022 cars though, I've gotten a bit more used to them, and I think that's because the 2022 cars are also fairly wider than the 2021 cars, they're a bit bigger, and they are heavier, so I think that's why i kind of gotten used to them now and they don't look as strange to me. Talking about heavier cars though, the minimum weight limit was raised in the 2022 season, so the cars were meant to be a lot heavier, and that was for safety reasons. Strangely enough though, Alfa Romeo seemed to be, I think, the only team that actually started on the minimum weight limit at the beginning of the season. A lot of the other teams did slowly start to manage to get their weight down because most of them were nowhere near the minimum weight. I am expecting in 2023 for a lot more of the cars to be hitting the minimum weight limit just because it's a fairly easy way to make up a lot of time just by having a lighter car, but I guess we're going to have to wait and see if teams manage to do that, because if poor pricing and other issues with the car have been taking over sort of research and development, 
they might not have focused on actually making the car lighter as much. On a whole though, do I think these new regulations really help with racing? I'm split on this one guys, and I'm split on this one because everyone had such vastly different interpretations of these regulations. You could see just from looking at the two ends of the spectrum, Ferrari have these absolutely massive bath-sized side pods. Honestly, you could probably sit comfortably in there and take a bath. And then you've got Mercedes on the other end of the spectrum with absolutely no side pods. No pods. And they're both concepts that seem to be working. And I know that Mercedes had the pole poising and they weren't exactly the quickest car on track this year, but they said themselves that the fact that they had no side pods wasn't causing the pole poising. That was down to the chassis and something that was going on underneath the car. So both concepts are things that are working for the teams. Red Bull is obviously then kind of in the middle with these quite drastically swooping side pods. So you have the entire spectrum of side pods on the grid and they're working and they all seem to have potential. As the years go on though, I think we're slowly going to start to see the cars across the grid converge into one type of design because the teams are going to start figuring out what's working best. They'll figure out what's the lightest, what's the most cost effective, and most importantly, what's the quickest. But I do think this year was a lot more for the teams to learn about what works and what doesn't than actually get that closer racing. I feel like there were just quite a few races this year that I just didn't feel like we had much going on. They felt really processional and there wasn't a lot of change between the starting grid and then everyone crossing the finish line, if that makes sense. The races that we did see overtakes in, I think we saw them in that really tightly packed midfield group where the cars are generally closer together in terms of speed anyway. But I think we did see the new regulations working there because we had some really exciting, amazing overtakes to watch. So I really hope we get more of that next year, sort of these three car overtakes where people are overtaking and re-overtaking and just a lot more action on track. It's what I want. I want the aero regulations to work and I want really good wheel-to-wheel racing. But while we're talking about regs, let's talk about the teams that really managed to nail the regulations and which teams just struggled. There's no doubt about it, guys. Red Bull nailed all of the regulations pretty well. They had a couple of reliability issues at the beginning of the season, which I think everyone kind of thought might hinder them a little bit, but that wasn't even to do with their car concept, really. And in all fairness to them, they got that under control fairly early on. After that point, they just seemed to be unstoppable. The car seemed to be getting better and better every race, they were bringing upgrades that were just working, and they were able to make the car a lot lighter, and the car was just flying on track, especially Max's car compared to Checo's. Like I said though, I think Adrian Newey played a massive, massive part in the success of the Red Bull this year, and is a huge reason why they managed to get the Constructors' Championship. On the other side though, I think we saw Mercedes really struggle with the regulations this year. And I mean by Mercedes standards, they struggle pretty badly. Mercedes fans, and me included, 
thought that when they reveal their no-pods concept in Bahrain testing, that the car was just going to fly. It's what we've been used to seeing for so many years, and even when the results came out from pre-season testing, I think we all just thought that they were sandbagging. And that wasn't just the fans. All the drivers thought that they were sandbagging. The other team principals thought that they were sandbagging. And Mercedes kept turning around and saying, no, we're really not sandbagging and the car is really that bad. And no one believed them. And then we got to the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend and there was no reason for them to be sandbagging anymore. And that's when reality hit home. This car was a mess, and they were just losing so much time because of the bouncing. It was awful, and they were in this no-man's land of third place, where for the majority of the season, or okay, not the majority, probably the first half of the season, they weren't really competing for podiums and race wins unless there was something happening up the front. Alpine and McLaren were a little too far back in most of the races, So what we ended up having was George sort of chilling in like fourth to fifth place during the races and then Lewis somewhere in the back with a horrible car setup that he took on for the team and just trying to make his way through this pack. And there was absolutely no pleasure out of that Mercedes car at all. In all honesty though, I do think they're one of the teams that improved the most. I think a lot of the experimental setups that Lewis did in the first half of the season did end up paying dividends in the second half. The engineers just worked incredibly hard to figure out what was wrong with the car, how they could fix it, what was going on. And it did pay off, but we couldn't see a massive improvement because of the cost cap. It meant that they couldn't bring in all the upgrades that were needed to fix the cars. So, while they really didn't start off the season very well, and it was disappointing to them and to Mercedes fans, I think they're probably one of the most improved teams. And for most people, I don't think that came as a surprise. I think there's a work ethic within that team, and they have the talent with their engineers, their drivers, their mechanics, their leadership, that they were always going to find a way to fix the problem. Also, can I just mention how great it was to see Alpine fighting with McLaren for fourth place in the Constructors' Championship. It was so good to watch. It was lush seeing Alpine kind of improve from the last couple of years, because obviously McLaren had been fighting with Ferrari for fourth place in 2021, and now we were seeing Alpine sort of pushing forward and able to enter that battle to become fourth or fifth in the Constructors' Championship. But I mean, let's be honest, McLaren were probably hoping for a much better car the way that Ferrari had managed to improve and sort of leap forward. I think McLaren were hoping for the same thing. I think the beginning of the season probably hindered them in their battle with Alpine, though, and not so much with the aero regs. I think what did end up being an issue with them were some brake issues that were causing a few reliability issues, and they were struggling to iron them out for the first couple of races, and that probably didn't help their battle. I've got to be honest with you though, right? The team that probably pleasantly surprised me the most was Alfa Romeo. They had a completely new driver lineup for 2022. Valtteri was in the car from Mercedes as a new driver, and then they had Zhou Guan Yu coming in as a rookie. They had started off with what I mentioned, I'm pretty sure, was the lightest car on the grid, 
didn't seem to have massive amounts of pool poisoning and ended up finishing sixth in the Constructors' Championship. They didn't seem to have a huge amount of issues in terms of the arrow regs. I think they probably could have done better this year if reliability issues hadn't been so prominent in the team. They had stopped sourcing as many parts from Ferrari compared to 2021, I think. And I think the gearbox was something they decided not to buy in and to build in-house. So that might have caused a couple of issues, but there were also issues with the Ferrari-powered engine, and there were a lot of reliability issues there. But honestly, I was just so pleasantly surprised and loved watching Guan Yu and Valtteri drive. They just seem to be a really cohesive pairing on the grid, and I hope Alfa Romeo carry on with this trajectory, and we see eventually Alfa Romeo on a podium. So this is still talking about the teams, but I'm coming off the topic of aero regs, because I don't think I could do a season review without talking about the prancing horse that is Ferrari. I really do not know what is going on with that team at the moment, guys. I don't think the Tafosi know. I'm not entirely sure that Ferrari really know what's going on at the moment. I was so hopeful for Charles at the beginning of this season. After seeing his performance in Bahrain, I was so, so excited. They were doing really well. I thought, right, the car looks strong. Charles looks confident. This is going to be a great season for Ferrari and for him. And then it all started to fall apart. And I I really thought that it was going to be a hard-fought battle between Max and Charles for the WDC and that there would be a bit more of a battle for first in the WCC. And that didn't end up happening. And don't get me wrong now, right? I know that some of this is down to some driver mistakes. Charles and Carlos made some mistakes during the season that cost them wins, cost them entire races because they ended up DNFing due to crashes and all sorts of things like that. There's no excuse in that, and I'm sure they know what they need to work on for this coming season to stop those things from happening. And let's be honest, I think all drivers make mistakes, and sometimes drivers do just go through a period where those mistakes might be happening quite frequently in a season, and it's kind of trying to get out of that psyche and just working on your racecraft. And I think we did see that towards the end of the season, they were both getting a lot better. But things like strategy blunders, engine reliability issues... There's no excuse for that. That is on the entire team. I don't necessarily think Ferrari were the quickest car this year. Like I said, I think Red Bull had a much more complete package, but I think they could have been so much closer in the Constructors' Championship and even in the Drivers' had it not been for so many mistakes. They had double DNFs, Carlos's engine going up in flames, they had Charles stop three times in Hungary when it probably wasn't necessary because he was on a medium-medium-hard strategy for some reason. Then, of course, we saw Carlos only ending up with three tyres instead of a full set in a pit stop, not to mention that we had team orders not being communicated properly to the drivers. I mean, the list goes on, guys. There is a lot internally going on in Ferrari, and It was driving me absolutely insane during the season that nobody in Ferrari seemed to be admitting that there was a problem with their strategy or anything else in that team. They were genuinely saying that nothing was wrong with the strategy, the strategy team itself, everything was fine and it was driving me mad, the Tafosi mad, 
the press mad because there were such massive problems with the strategy calls and everyone was calling it out. Commentators, news outlets, Tifosi, there were memes being made about it online. But Ferrari just didn't want to seem to admit that problem to anyone. By the end of the season, though, and actually it wasn't even the end of the season, during the off-season, they obviously realised that there were some mistakes that were being made, because we ended up saying goodbye to Matti Bonotto and hello to Frederick Vasu as the team principal of Ferrari. I don't know whether that is going to fix anything at Ferrari, if I'm completely honest with you guys. I don't think it's going to make a mass amount of difference. I don't think Matty was the main problem at Ferrari is why. I think they've got much deeper rooted issues within their personnel right now. I think their strategy team definitely isn't one of the best on the grid and that's the nicest way I could put it. With a team that has as much prestige as Ferrari, you just expect a higher level, especially in that specific area. So I know there are a lot of people are hoping that Vasu will be the dawn of a new era in Ferrari and he'll come in, he'll fix the team and get them back to winning ways. But I don't think it's going to be that simple. I think what we're going to end up having is a short term of unrest in Ferrari for a little while as Vasu just finds his feet there. This guy comes with an absolute wealth of experience though, there's no doubt about that. He was obviously the TP for Alfa Romeo Sauber for a couple of years. He founded ART in F3 and F2 and they still race in those categories. He's also worked with so many of the drivers that are on the grid, including Charles and Lewis. But Ferrari's just something else completely. They're the most recognised brand on the grid and there's a certain way that they function, especially when you compare that to Alfa Romeo, which is such a smaller team. Ferrari is just a machine. And maybe right now it's not a well-oiled machine, but it is a machine. And I think it's just going to take a little bit of time for him to get used to that. Don't get me wrong, though. I really hope I'm wrong in this. I honestly do. I would love to see Ferrari take home a WCC. I would absolutely adore seeing Charles take home a WDC. But I don't think the turnaround is going to be as instant as some people think it's going to be. Enough about the team, though, and on to the drivers. I feel like we had a huge changeover in drivers this year. We actually ended up saying goodbye to four of them. Three, I think we could say, probably didn't leave on their own accord and because they really wanted to leave the grid, and the other one was a retirement. So, let's start off with the retirement of the youngest ever world champion, Sebastian Vettel. So Sebastian, just before summer break, announced that he would be retiring from Formula 1. He is a four-time world champion with Red Bull. He helped Red Bull win their first four consecutive Constructors' Championships. He then moved on to drive with Ferrari and become a race winner there, before finally moving to Aston Martin. There had been a couple of rumours, I think, pretty much since Seb left Ferrari that he was going to retire. But he ended up getting a contract with Aston Martin. And then at the beginning of this year, those rumours about him retiring started to amplify and float around again. And I can't lie, I brushed the rumours off. Like, nope, I don't think he's retiring. And I can't lie, that was probably denial on my half. I really did not want to believe that he was leaving the grid. 
And then he went and created an Instagram, and that amplified even more of the retirement rumours. And I was still thinking that maybe he just wanted to be on social media. This guy who has openly said he doesn't like social media, yeah, maybe he got a little bored. And then he posted his first ever Instagram post, which was a fairly long video announcing his retirement. It's gutting to see a guy and a driver like said leave the grid. Realistically, I do understand why. He's got a young family that he wants to be able to spend more time with. He's also really conscious of the carbon footprint that comes along with racing in F1. And I mean, at the crux of it, this guy is a competitor. And I just don't think that the Aston Martin is up to race winning ways just yet. It's gonna take a couple of more years. And that means a lot of time with the team to try and fix that car. And for a guy who wants to be able to spend time with his family, his kids, his wife, his parents, you're not going to want to dedicate so much time to the car. It was so sad to see him retire, but I definitely think we saw some of his best racing after his announcement. And I don't know whether that was just because there was a lot less stress and pressure on him now and he could just enjoy that racing and enjoy his last few races but it almost made it more gutting that he was leaving when you saw his racecraft. I really can't tell whether he's going to come back or not. I think because he cited that time commitments were one of the reasons why he was retiring, I would say no, especially with this ever-expanding race calendar that we keep seeming to have and F1 keeps giving us. But we've seen so many drivers leave and come back. I mean, you just have to look at Fernando Alonso, Kimi, Nico Hülkenberg's making a comeback in 2023. So I think it's one of those things where you don't really know what life is going to be like out of F1 until you've actually left. So I would never say never, but I think I'm erring on the side of not likely. But of course, I would love to see him come back in some kind of capacity. Doesn't have to be as a driver to see him work within a team in a sort of advisory role or a team principal role. I think that would be great. After Seb, though, there were another three drivers that we also saw leave this season. We said goodbye to Daniel Ricciardo, Mick Schumacher and Nicholas Latifi. Daniels was an interesting goodbye and one that was slightly surprising so he's the guy I'm gonna start off with first. Look it's not that I thought Daniel was doing a superb job at McLaren. I think we all really saw him struggle with that car and he just wasn't getting the results. It was a struggle race after race and I think we really saw that in the 2022 season. The reason I say I'm surprised that he ended up leaving F1 was because it wasn't really his choice to leave. His contract wasn't done yet, and all the events leading up to him leaving were a little bit shocking. There were rumours flying around for a little while that McLaren weren't too happy with him, but he had posted an Instagram story in the middle of the season where these rumours about him leaving or the contract being cut or him retiring were at its height. And basically, he had said, Look, and fully committed to being with McLaren with the year that was left in his contract. And I wasn't expecting it to be renewed after the year was up, but I thought he would at least be in a seat for 2023. You know, we saw the photos and heard about a speech that he had made in front of the MTC to let them know that he wasn't leaving, that he was fully committed to the team and wanted to work as hard as possible alongside them. 
he was crying during this speech. And I think Andrea Seidel had come out and was like, yeah, McLaren are fully committed to keeping Daniel. We want him here. He is part of our family. And then I don't know what ended up happening. We just heard news that Oscar Piastri was taking that McLaren seat and Daniel was going to be leaving McLaren. I do still think Daniel has the talent for F1, right? I don't think it just left him overnight. I just don't think McLaren was the place for him. The car concept and the way the McLaren drives, I don't think that's suited to his driving style. I kind of wish he'd stayed with Renault, which is now tuned into Alpine. He just seemed to slowly be having better results there throughout his, I think it was two years at Renault, and I think he probably would have found a lot more success there. So I am a little bit gutted that he had left and ended up moving to McLaren. All that aside, though, because we can't change what happened. He is now signed on as the Red Bull third driver for this coming year. So he's not completely out of the loop in F1. He's going to be doing some work with them. I don't know whether he's turning up to every race, but I think even Daniel has said this year will be a really good year for him to kind of recenter and just relax and wind after what was a really difficult year for him. So I guess we'll just end up seeing how that goes and how many races he does end up coming to, but I know he's also doing media work for Red Bull as well, so hopefully it's just a good chance for him to unwind and relax a little bit. Do I think he's going to end up getting a seat in 2024? I'm not entirely sure, right? I think a lot of it is going to end up depending on the state of Red Bull and their drivers and what RBR end up deciding to do. I don't think Max is particularly at risk with his seat, let's be honest. I think Checo is going to be the more interesting one to keep an eye on. And I know Checo signed on until I think it's the end of 2024, but contracts mean nothing, as we can tell from everything that's happened with Daniel. And also Red Bull have booted people out of seats mid-season, so I wouldn't completely rule him out of coming back to F1, but I think it's just him being able to find a seat again and Honestly, I think the most likely place that will be with is Red Bull. Mick Schumacher was then the third driver to leave the grid in 2022. And honestly, I can't lie, I have so much love for Mick. But I think you could tell that Gunther really did not want him in that car fairly early on in the season. And Mick had generally had a couple of troubles with the Haas. Don't get me wrong, the Haas was not a great car by any means, but... I think early on in 2022, you could tell that he was having a couple of difficulties with the car. I do think that Mick is a driver that needs a little bit more time and potentially more nurturing. And there are teams on the grid that are able to do that, that can take young talent and nurture them and help them become better drivers. But Haas is not the team that is going to nurture you, let's be honest there. They're a backmarker team who are essentially fighting every race for their survival in F1, so I don't think that they were going to be the team to help him improve and really push him forward. And Gunter himself had said he he doesn't like having rookies in his car, and I don't know whether that is one because, yet they are more likely to crash and to damage the car, and that costs a lot of money that Haas just don't have. But yeah, it's gutting not to see him come back to the grid this coming year, but I'm not completely surprised at the same time. At least, I'm not surprised that he's not coming back with Haas. Mick now is the reserve driver for Mercedes, though, which I don't think is a bad thing up 
or it keeps him on the grid and Mercedes and Mick have said that he's going to be attending pretty much every single race next year. He's going to be working with some amazing talent in F1, if not some of the best. I mean, you'll be working alongside a seven-time world champion. You've got some amazing race engineers, engineers, mechanics in that team. You've got Toto Wolf, who's been at the helm at Mercedes for so long. And I think if you look at what happened to Esteban Ocon when he lost his seat and ended up being the Merc Reserve for a year, he managed to get back onto the grid the following year. You had Nick DeVries, who has been waiting for so long to have his chance in F1, became the Mercedes Reserve driver while he was competing in FE and became an FE world champion. And now the guy's coming onto the grid this coming year and racing with AlphaTauri. So I think that there's a lot of hope left for Mick to get back on the grid. And I think being in Mercedes has given him a really good position to find a seat again. There have been a couple of rumours though. Some of them aren't rumours. Some of them the team principals have outright said, yeah, we did consider him for a seat. So I know Alpha Tari were looking at taking him and Williams, but there were issues with both his Haas contract and his Ferrari Driver Academy contract that caused some issues and by the time the FDA had kind of released him the seats were taken up. I do think he still has an opportunity like I said to be on the grid in 2024 and I think 2023 is just going to be a good learning experience for him after what was a rough two years for pass. There is one last driver that we said goodbye to in 2022 and that was Nicholas Latifi. I think Nicky's had a tough couple of years in F1, if I'm completely honest with you. The first two years in an F1 driver's career can be quite difficult. For Nicky, his first two years were in the Williams, going up against George, who is an extremely good driver and someone who is just able to control the Williams so well. So I think it was kind of hard to get a benchmark there when you're also a little bit behind on experience compared to George. 2022 though I think was the perfect opportunity for Nicky to showcase himself and his skills not just to Williams but to the rest of the grid. There were reg changes and he was up against a teammate who okay fair enough right wasn't a rookie but had been out of F1 for a year. Alex was coming in after a year out of F1 and also having driven Red Bull cars for his entire F1 career He was in Toro Rosso and then moved up to Red Bull. He was joining the Williams team, which obviously is a different engine manufacturer. It's a different style of car. So I think this year was just a chance for Nicky to show that he deserved to have his seat in F1 and to really put up a fight. Like I said, not just for Williams, but for other teams on the grid to potentially show that interest in him. And it just did not materialise this year for him. And whilst it is gutting to see drivers leave the grid, I'm not completely surprised that Williams did opt to then drop him from their lineup, especially when you ended up seeing his results compared to Alex's throughout the entire season. If I'm completely honest though, I think the nail in the coffin for him, more than anything else, was when Alex got appendicitis and Nick DeVries ended up taking Alex's seat, because Nick's never driven an F1 car competitively on a race weekend. He has done FP1 sessions for a lot of teams in 2022, but he hasn't actually driven in a race or in qualification. 
He has done FE, like I mentioned before, he's a world champion there, but those cars react so differently to an F1 car. Nick came into the car, bagged points on his first race, had an absolutely amazing race weekend, and overall it was just a really beautiful weekend to watch for him. I think that Williams kind of had to sit there at that point though and think, did they really want to renew Nicky's contract? And when they were able to see what Nick DeVries was able to do in that car at fairly short notice, the answer was no. They weren't going to renew that contract and so he ended up leaving the grid. I do hope that he ends up finding something within motorsport if that's what he enjoys and that's what he wants to carry on with and it's something that he succeeds at and just finds love in. I mean, this guy was a vice champion in F2. He does have talent, but sometimes it just doesn't translate into F1. I don't think he's announced anything at the moment. There were rumours about IndyCar, but I think even Nicky was like, when he was asked about it during presses and press pens, that, yeah, he hadn't spoken to anyone, he hasn't got anything set in stone, and it was a sort of when I know, you guys will know sort of thing. So hopefully he finds something soon and just finds some joy in it and succeeds in it. So those are all the drivers that are leaving that we aren't going to be seeing on the grid in at least 2023. One of them in Seb seems to be a permanent goodbye. And the others, I mean, you never know. Even in Seb's case, you don't know. People come back. But Let's move on to some of the standout drivers of 2022. I'm actually going to start with the only rookie this year, and that's Joe Guan Yu, who is driving for Alfa Romeo. I was so surprised at what he managed to do in that car this year. Don't get me wrong, the Alfa Romeo was by no means a bad car to drive. Like I said, did really well with the arrow regs, but as a rookie to come into the team and to be driving so well, he had really minimum racing incidents compared to what you might expect from a rookie. I think he did have a few DNFs, but the majority of those, I think, also ended up being technical. And there was that absolutely awful accident in Silverstone, and my heart was in my mouth watching that. It was terrifying to watch. But I think the fact that he was just able to get back in the car for the next race after being in that sort of accident and still have this positive attitude while doing interviews, smiling, being grateful to be back on the grid, it takes a lot and it takes a lot for that accident to not alter your mindset while you're in the car and for you to keep making those mistakes. He just did so well and I'm really excited to see what else he's got. There was so much that he learned and is still learning from Valtteri and I think that's half of the battle with drivers sometimes. Ego can get in the way of learning but I think Guan Yu seems to be someone that wants to learn and wants to improve so I think there's a lot more to come from him and I can't wait to see it. I think it's pretty clear that Max Verstappen had an extremely good year in 2022. The car was absolutely phenomenal, but he was pulling out 12 second gaps to the rest of the pack while he was leading. Even when he had engine penalties to compete with, he was able to work through the pack fairly quickly. It was just an extremely, extremely good year for him. I mean, at the beginning of the year, after the Australian Grand Prix, I think it was, 
I remember him doing an interview post-race where he had kind of written off the championship fairly early on. And I think a few people found it strange because we were, what, only three races into the season at that point? He just sort of seemed to think that it was done and dusted. A WDC was out of the question and, you know, his season of competing for first was now done and over with. But the wheels of F1 moved so quickly and once Red Bull managed to get their reliability issues under control, I don't think many people were really doubting that he was going to be walking away with that WDC. There's not a whole lot to say on Max, to be honest with you guys, because he was pulling leads so large and not having to fight through the field as much that I don't really remember seeing him on TV a whole load but he is our champion for 2022 and I don't think many people were doubting that he was going to end up taking that championship the minute that Red Bull had managed to sort out their problems. Alex Albon was another driver who ended up pleasantly surprising me. He had obviously taken a year out of F1 after losing his RBR seat, but still ended up working with Red Bull and doing some sim work for them. I think he was also doing some sort of driver coaching with Yuki during Yuki's rookie year. And I was really curious as to how he was going to settle back into F1, because driving a sim is very different to actually driving an F1 car. It can't mimic absolutely everything that's going on in the car itself. Obviously, the car concepts did change this year and maybe that helped him out. But regardless of all of that, I think he just had a stellar season. I think the race that stood out for me the most for Alex this season was the Australian Grand Prix. The guy did like 56 laps on hard tyres. It was incredible watching him do that and manage the tyres so well. And I was watching the tireage go up on the F1 app being like, why aren't Williams pitting this man? He's going to end up falling out of the points. He's going to lose so much time. But it just paid off and worked so well for them and ended up hauling some points home for Williams. And I think it was their first points haul of the season. His whole season, though, I mean, that was a standout drive for me. But his whole season, he worked that Williams as hard as he physically could and got some really good points home for Williams in what ended up being the worst car on the grid when you look at the championship. So well done to Alex, and I hope that Williams have a better car for him to fight in. Lewis Hamilton had an extremely tricky season to deal with. The W13 was definitely not a car that was going to be competing for wins or championships for the vast majority of the season let's be honest. It was causing him a lot of back pain and was just a struggle to be honest from start to finish. And you know, he said himself he is so happy to be retiring the W13 and I think every Mercedes fan and everyone working in Mercedes would probably agree with him there. And while sixth in the Drivers' Championship is nothing really for him to shout home about probably, I'm so incredibly impressed at his professionalism this season, his work ethic, and the way he's carried himself and his team. This man was doing crazy experimental setups during the first half of the season, setups that weren't going to make the car any faster necessarily, but would help the team to learn so much more about the car, why it was bouncing on track, why it only seemed to work on specific tracks, and how to fix all of those problems. 
he took those setups on and did it so the team could progress and with all of that going on the man still got 19 top 10 finishes 15 top 5 finishes and 9 podiums with a car that was causing him so much pain and absolutely crazy experimental setups so honestly well yeah he didn't get a pole position and he didn't have a win this season I think he has a lot to be proud of coming out of this season. I also have honourable mentions to give to George and Charles, who I think had incredible seasons as well. George was coming into Mercedes for his first year when he's been in a backmarker team his entire career. I think he handled the transition into Mercedes really well. He got his first win and his first pole position this season in Brazil and Hungary, respectively. So overall, a really good season for him. He came away with a good haul of points, a good haul of podiums, and a lot of learning that I'm sure he's going to carry on doing into the season coming now. Charles had a bit more of an up and down season at points. Some things at the beginning of the season were to do with his driving. A lot this season had to do with the Ferrari car and strategy, but He showed so much resilience mentally and physically with that car that it was really impressive to watch. I think he's learned a lot from this season and is growing so much more as a driver. He has broken the record for number of poles in a season by a Ferrari driver, which is incredible when you consider that he's taken that record from Michael Schumacher and he should be so incredibly proud of that. His qualification pace was absolutely amazing. It was blistering so hopefully he can work on quality pace even more i would love to see more pole positions come from him but not just quality pace his race pace and between him and ferrari hopefully we will see a lot more wins from him coming in 2023 drivers that seem to struggle though i've mentioned things to do with daniel mick and nikki and in part of the reason why they were leaving their seats someone else i thought that struggled this season but I can't even pin it down to them. I pin it down to their car, is Pierre. And like I said, I, I don't think that was his fault. The AlphaTauri was a struggle to drive by the looks of it. And it, it definitely was not his best season by far. And I think you could see how much it was frustrating him being in that car. You could also tell, I think, he was done being in the AlphaTauri seat. I think he's obviously grateful to be driving for them, but he is a driver that has exceptional racecraft, is a really good driver and deserves to be in a better seat than the Alpha Tauri. And I've got to be honest, guys, I don't think Red Bull were ever going to pull him back up into the main seat again for a number of reasons. But yeah, just a bad season for him, reliability and just having to fight through the pack and, and not being able to do it in the car he was in. Like I said, though, he is a really good driver and I do hope we get to see a lot more of his driving ability in the Alpine this coming year. But yeah, 2022, not a good season for him and more on the car than him as a driver. Checo was an interesting driver this season. It wasn't a bad season for him by any means. He ended up third in the Drivers' Championship. That's not a bad place to end in at all. My issue was when you start comparing his performance to Max's in that same car, there's a lot to pull from that. When Max is getting 12 second leads when he was able to get to the front of the field, or when he had started from the front when he was on pole, it just wasn't the same for Checo. Even when he was leading a Grand Prix, it was more of a fight for him to 
get there. Maybe it's just because that car is definitely more geared towards Max. Max is the number one Red Bull driver. And when you compare Max's 15 wins to Checo's two, it's just a little bit disappointing, I think, guys. I like seeing driver pairings quite evenly matched up where they are fighting each other and it's clean fighting. They're not crashing into each other or anything, but you have a really good battle on your hands. And when the Red Bull is as good as it is, and even though it's more geared towards Max, I think I was just hoping to see Chaco a little bit more at the front. But instead of him fighting Max and... I'm not getting into Red Bull sort of team orders right now. I think what we ended up seeing was him fighting a lot more with people like Charles, Carlos, Lewis, George, who were a little bit further back from Max. And it was just a little bit disappointing. So I don't know whether he's a bit more used to the car now and we'll see improvements in his driving next year or this year now, but we're going to have to wait and see. Okay. On to my favourite part of this season review, and what I've been so excited to talk about, can't lie, some of the highlights of the dramas and scandals that have been going on in F1 over 2022. The biggest one, and the one that I really couldn't stop following, was the Piastri Alpine McLaren love triangle drama that we had going on. I don't think anyone really saw that coming. It was quite left to feel, let's be honest. There have been rumours that Alonso and Alpine were going to part ways because Alpine weren't going to offer him more than a one-year contract. And I think everyone thought it was the most logical move to have Oscar come into that seat. He was part of the Alpine Academy, an F2 and F3 champion, and to be honest with you, I thought he would work pretty well with Esteban. And apparently, Alpine thought the same thing as me and thought it was a good idea because they released the news that Oscar had signed to race with them in 2023. And I was so excited when I heard this news. I absolutely love seeing new drivers on the grid, especially someone as talented as Oscar. I think it's great seeing a mixture of experienced drivers and rookies on the grid it pushes all the drivers to kind of learn new things and fight a little bit harder and it's really lovely seeing it because we also see the future of F1 when we get more rookies on the grid. And then I'm suddenly seeing these tweets from Oscar basically saying that he hadn't signed anything with Alpine. The statement had been released without him knowing and he was not going to be driving with Alpine in 2023. And the wording of his statement made it sound like he was going to be on the grid, just not with them. And then the rumour mill started up again, and this time they were about him driving with McLaren. And eventually McLaren did confirm that, yeah, Oscar was going to be driving with them for the 2023 season. And honestly, it just became so messy between the two teams. Alpine and McLaren ended up going to the contract recognition board since Alpine thought they had some sort of legally binding contract that meant Oscar couldn't drive with McLaren. But all that fell apart when they went to the board because the only contract the CRV said actually stood was the McLaren one. It was the only contract that Oscar had any legal right to fulfil. And look, 
To a certain extent, I understand why Alpine might be a bit upset with everything that happened with Oscar, because yeah, they did pour a lot of money into his career, his time as a reserve and development driver with them. Apparently, they'd lined up a seat in Williams for him. I think after Nicky had left, they had had conversations with Williams and they were going to pop him in that seat for 2023. And I think basically they were hoping Alonso would sign a one-year contract and then they'd pull Oscar up into Alpine then after 2023. But let's be honest, guys. In a choice to drive in the Williams, which is a backmarker team at the moment, and McLaren, who are at least in the top half of the grid, you can understand why he ended up going for the Papaya team. Do I think the comments that Otmar is making about Oscar are right in all these interviews that he's giving? Absolutely not. This guy is 21 years old and about to start his F1 career, and as angry as you might be about the situation, I think you just have to learn to let those things go, because nothing's going to change the fact that he isn't driving for you next year. And if we're being completely honest as well, Alpine didn't get the short end of the stick here. They ended up signing Pierre Gasly, who is a race winner and comes with absolute years of experience, and you now have an all-French lineup in a French team. So it's not like you missed out on something huge. You've got a really good driver lineup coming up. So I think it's time to kind of let go of Oscar and any ill will towards him and let the guy just enjoy his F1 career now. I really hope he does well in McLaren, I hope he enjoys his time there and he succeeds. I really hope Pierre flies with Alpine as well, and we get to see battles between these two teams again, and I really hope that we can just put to bed this entire weird love triangle. There was also cost cap gate towards the end of this year. I think it was towards the end. There were a lot of rumours going on, basically from the start of the season about the cost cap. And the rumours were essentially that Red Bull had gone over the limit. There was no official line on it though, the rumours had been going around for a little while and the FIA weren't going to say anything until they had basically released all of their findings after the teams had basically submitted their accounts in for the last year. But when the FIA finally released their report or findings or whatever it was on the cost cap, they ended up saying that, yep, Red Bull had indeed managed to go over the limit. Now, at this point, there was a little bit of back and forth with RBR and the FIA about whether it was a clerical error or whether certain things had counted under the cost cap but shouldn't have been. And I don't really understand why there was so much back and forth, if I'm honest with you because 2020 was actually used as a practice run for the cost cap. The teams had come out and said that they had the option to use it as a practice, to submit in their accounts and just get used to the process that they needed to go through. And also in 2021, the FIA were really transparent and had basically told the teams, if you have any problems or if you're not sure basically whether something comes under the cost cap or not, please just come and ask us and we can tell you. And a lot of the teams had ended up saying that they had used that service from the FIA, they had gone to them and they had asked them about it, and the FIA were really quick in getting back to them and giving them that information. So the FIA weren't necessarily trying to catch people out, they wanted it to be transparent, they wanted to help the teams with this. So I personally don't get why there needed to be so much back and forth, or why Christian Horner thought that 
yeah, we might have made a clerical error or we didn't think this would be included in the cost cap. One of the weirdest rumours, maybe it was a joke that ended up as a rumour, um, was that the reason RBR had gone over the cost cap was on their catering budget. Who knows if that's true, but look, in my opinion, regardless of what it was spent on, a breach in the cost cap limit is a breach and needs to be punished. The back and forth did happen though, and the FIA did stick by their decision and gave RBR a fine and a 10% reduction in wind tunnel time. For me, the fine system doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Because the teams that are going over the cost cap limit are the big names. They're the ones that can afford to go over the cost cap limit. They're not teams like Williams or Haas or Alfa Romeo at the end of the day. It would be teams like Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull, McLaren. Those are teams that are definitely going to be able to afford to pay a penalty. So I don't see how that works as a deterrent. In terms of the wind tunnel time, I think I was just expecting something a little bit heftier. 10% I think will impact them. They are definitely going to have to be careful on how they use it, what upgrades they actually want to use in the wind tunnel to see if they work or not. So it will take a bit more careful planning and it does have the potential to hinder them. I just don't think it's hefty enough to work as a deterrent. And that's not just for Red Bull. I mean, that's for any team that is going over the cost cap. I think the whole minor and major overspend on how the FA decide to pick on a penalty needs to be done away with and Frederick Vasseur has said the same he said it while he was in Alfa Romeo and now that he's in Ferrari and was like look I don't think it matters one or two million dollars or pounds euros spent in development and going over the cost cap is absolutely massive and not all teams are able to do that going over the cost cap is giving you that advantage that other teams don't have. So I think it's going to be interesting to see if teams end up going over it again after 2022 and what the fines or penalties are going to be from that. The final two things to mention about the dramas and scandals of the 2022 season were just a little ridiculous to me, if I'm honest with you guys. And that was the jewellery and underwear debate. That seemed to rule a fair bit of the season. It felt like a fever dream, honestly. Like, when I kept seeing the news about this, it didn't feel real. I've never heard underwear and jewellery debated about so much in any other sport. This season, though, the FIA decided that it really wanted to clamp down on jewellery and fireproof underwear, which didn't seem to be a cause of concern for the past couple of years. It seemed to be quite random that they were bringing it up this year. And honestly, I wish I knew why the FIA had gotten so obsessed with those two things, but here we are. Of course, those two issues did end up giving us some amazing images, and we had Lewis coming into the press conference wearing as much jewellery as he could physically put on himself, and then we had Seb walking across the pit lane with his pants over his race suit. Honestly, with the underwear, I just, how were they? going to police that I'm just how were you going to do that and look my issue with the jewelry saga was the fact that I thought you could have just had the driver sign a waiver if they wanted to wear jewelry right educate them on the risks of wearing jewelry you guys have driver briefings put on a powerpoint or like a health and safety course that you have to take in work 
yeah, have them go through and learn what the risks are, why you guys have asked them not to wear jewellery. You know, you can show them images of some of the injuries. I don't know, just something that really educates them on it so they are fully aware and they have all the information that they need to make a decision on this. And then if they still decide that they want to wear jewellery, they just sign a waiver form that basically says, yeah, we will not hold the FIA responsible for any sort of injury that we get from wearing this jewellery if we were to get in an accident. Because I do get it. There are really bad accidents that can happen from wearing jewellery when you're in a crash or you're playing sport in general. I think the way they were trying to police it just seemed so random. And also then saying, yep, we're allowing wedding rings, but not X, Y, and Z. You had Lewis having to go to a specialist and surgically remove his nose stud. That ended up causing issues, and I think infections. And then he needed a note from his doctor to tell the FAA that he needed to keep it in. There was a medical reason, because it was going to cause issues otherwise. But for Pierre, who races with the cross on a necklace... It's something that's really important to him. It obviously means a lot. The guy crosses himself before every race and it's a religious piece of jewellery, I think, for him that he wants to keep close to him while he's racing. And I don't think the FIA have given him any special dispension on that. I don't know. Sometimes there's so much news that you end up losing half of what's going on. But I don't think there has been anything there. But it's like I said, I think maybe a waiver or something to that effect could work if drivers want to wear that jewellery. And maybe it's not that simple and straightforward, but you guys get what I mean. There's got to be a way around this. Honestly, though, I just, it was an interesting one, and I really can't believe that fireproof underwear and jewellery ended up being such huge talking points in 2022, but here we are. Of course, the end of the 2022 season did not mean that it was going to be the end of the F1 drama, because the team principals decided to have their own little silly season right when I thought things were going to be quiet for the rest of the year. I was honestly at a point where I thought, yep, F1 is done for the season, it's going to be quite chilled out, life without F1 for a bit, great. Most of the driver lineups, I think all of the driver lineups at that point were confirmed as well, so yeah. Great, wonderful. Nope, F1 didn't want to give me that, didn't want to give its fans that, and the team principals thought, let's have a bit of drama. So as I mentioned earlier, we had Mattia Bonotto leaving, and I think that was the first team principal that was announced to be leaving, and that left an opening up in Ferrari. Frederick Vasseur ended up taking over that role, which also meant that Alfa Romeo now had an opening for not only their TP, but their CEO. And I hadn't been expecting them to end up filling in the role of CEO that quickly, but it wasn't long before Andrea Seidel got announced as the new CEO of Alfa Romeo Sauber, which is eventually going to become Audi. And Audi and Andrea Seidel have had links before. He's worked alongside them, I'm pretty sure. So for him, he was going to end up working with a company that he knew because Alfa Romeo is eventually going to become the Audi team. I think 2026 is when the full acquisition takes place. So yeah, Andreas Seidel moved to CEO. That then left an opening in McLaren for their TP. 
But McLaren thought, right, we're not going to pull a TP from another team and cause more drama. What they did was end up pulling someone up from the ranks of McLaren, and that's Andrea Stella. So he was the executive director racing at McLaren and has now become their team principal. So it's someone that the team knows and he knows the team. But that still leaves an opening in Alfa Romeo for their team principal because Andrea Seidel isn't taking over as TP. He's only being CEO. So we've still got that opening there. And while all of this was going on, Williams released a statement saying that Jos Capito would be stepping down as the team principal the Williams F1 team. And from the wording of the statement, it did sound like he was opting to retire. The issue with Williams, though, is that they're not only losing him as their team principal, they're also losing their technical director at the same time. So that's two fairly big, important positions in their team that they're going to need to fill up. And Williams ended up announcing that James Vowles, who is the head of strategy at Mercedes, was going to be taking over as team principal of Williams. So there was just a lot of movement. And I'm not going to lie, guys, I'm probably going to end up getting more mixed up with the team principals and CEO names next season than I will the drivers and their teams. So thank you to them so much for that. And yeah, at this point, I still don't know who the Alfa Romeo team principal is. Maybe we'll know by the time this is posted. Maybe not, but who knows? Honestly, the amount of drama the team principals wanted in the off-season was just insane. There is so much movement with them up and down the grid that it's going to be interesting to see how some of the teams function. The ones that have swapped team principals over and haven't necessarily brought someone up from the ranks. So I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to see. And with that, we are brought to the end of the 2022 season. There was so much that happened, and I don't even think that was everything. Those were just the main highlights that stuck out to me and really kind of stood out in my brain, but I'm sure I've probably forgotten stuff that was quite big and happened, but has just been lost with all the other drama that's gone on. It was definitely a crazy season though, and I have absolutely no clue what's going to end up happening in 2023, but I am excited to see it. We've got movements in team principles, we have six teams with new driver lineups, only four teams are keeping the exact same driver lineup. We have teams now figuring out what to do with the regulations, reliability issues. I cannot wait for 2023 to start and I really hope you guys join me for this season. Thank you guys so much for listening to the first episode of The Steward's Office. It means so much to me that you guys are on this journey with me and I cannot wait to see what happens. Head over to thestewardsoffice.com where you can keep up with everything going on. Make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast app because next week I'm going to be doing a preview of the 2023 season. So I'll see you the next time you guys get summoned to the steward's office.